Hello, and welcome to the History of China. Episode 1, The Mythical Origins of the Middle Kingdom. The history of China is an immense story. As one of the oldest continuous civilizations on Earth, spanning, as any one of its 1.3 billion citizens will tell you, more than 5,000 years of time, it absolutely dwarfs even the largest and most storied of European civilizations. To put it into some kind of perspective, the entirety of the Roman history, from the city's mythical foundation by Romulus and Remus in 753 BCE, to its eventual conquest and rule over the majority of what they considered the known world, to its final dissolution of the western half in 476 CE, spanned more than 1,200 years. Though, of course, that end date does remain hotly disputed, given that the Eastern Empire kept right on chugging until the 15th century. It's impressive, at least by Western standards, where kingdoms and nations blow through every few centuries like so many leaves on the wind. But for China, that entire rise and fall is neatly encapsulated by the Zhou through the Jin dynasties, a paltry five of seventeen major historical periods, including the Republic and People's Republic periods. Now that really is astounding. With such a daunting amount of material to cover, it is fair to ask why I would want to devote my time to such a project. Well, beyond basic interest in the subject matter, the history of China can offer valuable insights into a culture that, for many, remains inherently mysterious and unapproachable. This is due, in no small part, to the distressingly difficult names of people, places, and events, as well as the markedly alien mindsets and philosophies that our Western cultures so often find it difficult to comprehend. After more than half a decade living in the country, I still feel as though I'm only scratching the surface of that understanding. In terms of why you might be interested, well, hopefully the subject matter itself is valuable to you. But beyond that, there are few out there today who are not aware of how much Chinese culture stands to impact itself on the Western world, and is already doing so. It therefore behooves all of us to understand as much of this ancient and enduring culture as we can. So then, let's get started. And where better to begin than the beginning? Well, that is, if only there were a beginning as such. Like virtually all civilizations that arose before the adoption of writing, the true origins of Chinese civilization can only be inferred through educated guesswork. Archaeological finds tell us that the region of the world that would become China was inhabited by humanoids, specifically Homo erectus, more than a million years ago. Yeah, that is fascinating. But this is not their story. Oh, I'm sorry, Homo erectus, but we are talking today about the thinking man, not the upright man. So at some point, around roughly 10,000 BCE or so, the slow but constant migration of Homo sapiens had wended its way out of its African cradle and into Mesopotamia. One branch of that had expanded north into Europe, to which this pale-skinned, blue-eyed author gives a hearty, hello, great times a thousand, Grandpa. Another splinter, though, 
just continued ambling vaguely eastward, eventually into and through the Indian subcontinent, and at some point finding their way around the incomprehensibly massive roadblock that is the Himalaya mountain range. Driven by a wanderlust sufficient to overcome even the biggest do-not-enter sign nature could possibly throw up, this band of humans would find on the other side of the vast mountain range a fertile, arable land, a place that at least some of them would finally call home. By 7000 BCE, we have evidence of agriculture and permanent settlements. At a place called Da Mai Di, in the modern province of Ningxia, there are cliff carvings dated at being between 5 and 6,000 years old. Much like the Neolithic paintings of the Chauvet Caves in France, these proto-linguistic symbols depict images of the sun, the moon, hunting, gods, people, and animals, in all totaling more than 8,400 individual symbols. The basis of culture, then, settlement, agriculture, skill specialization, and written records, were all in place for the incomparable civilization that was to follow. But interesting as that all is, it is a bit dry, isn't it? Instead, let's look at the other history of the foundation of China, the history told through story. Like the twins raised by the she-wolf that would found the city of Rome, it is a tale steeped in mythology. Emerging from the mists of time came what are known as the Three Sovereigns and Five Emperors. This period of harmony and tranquility if the stories are to be believed, span the 800-year period of 2852 through 2070 BCE. So there's our first hint that we might just be pushing the bounds of credulity. Eight guys for 800 years of rule. Hmm. The three gods were, in fact, effectually demigods. Confusingly, though they are known as the Three Sovereigns, there were actually more than three of them. Leave it to prehistorical mythology to confuse even itself. The first of the sovereigns in most tellings is commonly called Fu Shi. Born on the banks of the lower middle Yellow River and progeny of the heavenly Jade Emperor himself, early in life, his homeland was devastated by a great flood. Of his whole people, only young Fu Shi and his elder sister, Niuwa, survived the catastrophe. Nuwa, it should be said, is sometimes also considered the first sovereign, for reasons I'll get into in a moment. But that's not the popular telling, since she is a girl. And my sincere apologies to any women out there, but the fact of the matter is, history is not usually terribly kind to the fairer sex. The pair, undeterred, resolved to make their way to the mythical Kunlun Mountain, where they might gain the favor of the Emperor of Heaven. Upon arriving, the Jade Emperor charged them with creating or perhaps recreating the human race. To that end, he approved of their marital union, and, brother and sister, they began procreating the human race. But don't worry, they did it with clay, nothing, you know, incestuous. Having rendered their figures, their divine blessing allowed the statues to come to life, thus generating the human race. With their subjects duly created, Fushi and his sister-wife, Nuwa, ruled benevolently for 115 years. As the elder sibling, Nuwa had reigned on Earth for the preceding, oh, roughly 180,000 years prior to the Cataclysm, 
in a matriarchal system. Men, as it turned out, hadn't been particularly useful up to this point because childbearing had been a miraculous event that occurred without any male input. But newly empowered by the Emperor of Heaven, Fushi set about changing that utopian system into the patriarchal domination we still know and love today. Conception was no longer a solo affair, and now required that messy but thoroughly enjoyable coupling that's been in vogue ever since. Fushi taught his newly created subjects to cook, fish, wield iron tools, and hunt with them, along with inventing marriage and offering the first open-air sacrifices to heaven. Additionally, Fushi is traditionally credited with authoring the Yi Qing after finding and copying down the markings on the back of a flying dragon horse, or possibly dragon turtle. Unfortunately, accounts differ, and we may never be certain which specific dragon animal divinely revealed the book to Fuxi. Darn. For those of you who may not know, the Yi Qing, also known as the Yi Jing or the Zhou Yi, because as we'll see time and again in Chinese history, one name would just be too darn straightforward, means the book or the classic of changes. It is primarily a book detailing a system of divination fairly similar to Western geomancy. Initially, it was arranged as eight trigrams, which is to say patterns of three horizontal lines with differing midpoint breaks in some or all of them. These trigrams represented the eight classical elements, which were sky, lake, fire, thunder, wind, water, mountain, and earth. As a modern example, you can still see the symbols for sky, fire, water, and earth, respectively, on the modern flag of South Korea, surrounding the blue and red yin-yang. After having ruled his people magnanimously for 115 years, Fushi finally departed this world in 2737 BCE, at the ripe old age of 197. So that means he must have come to power when he was at the tender age of 82, and then fathered his children with his elder sister. Impressive indeed. He died in a place called simply Chen, in the current province of Henan, and to this day there is still a monument erected to his life and supposed reign. Fushi was succeeded in most tellings by the second sovereign, known as both the Yen, or Flame Emperor, and as Shen Nong. And again, though Nuwa is sometimes also labeled as being the second sovereign, once again, she typically gets the short shrift and left out. Never mind the again 180-year thousand reign, because we simply can't have girl cooties contaminating our demigod emperors. Shen Nong's non-imperial title means Divine Farmer, and so it should come as no surprise that he is thought of as the one who taught the ancient Chinese agriculture, as well as the art of herbal drugs. It is notable that this succession of food supply follows, at least in a general way, what we've come to understand as the reality of the prehistoric human condition. First, fishing, hunting, and gathering edibles was the way early humans fed themselves and their tribes, before eventually discovering that, hey, if we just plant these seeds, we don't have to spend all day, every day, chasing down deer. And, oh yeah, we can also ferment those grains into delicious alcohol. Not really a hard choice, all things considered. So, thanks, Shen Nong. 
The second sovereign is credited with inventing associated farming tools, such as the hoe, the plow, the axe, wells, irrigation, as well as preserving seed stock in boiled horse urine. He's also credited with having invented the calendar, as time, and keeping track of it, meant quite a bit more to the farmer needing to know when to plant and when to reap, than to the hunter-gatherers of Fushi, who pretty much just needed to know whether the sun was up or not. In fact, his dynastic title, the Flame Emperor, likely comes from the idea that he taught his people slash-and-burn farming techniques to clear off farmable land for production. And then there's also the fact that he had fire powers, so also that. As a sovereign of agriculture, he is said to have shared many traits with the oxen that plow the field, including sporting a pair of sharp ox-like horns atop his head, which was made of iron. The people under his care came to call themselves the Shenongshi, or clan of Shenong, to which the contemporary Han ethnicity can trace its origins. As mentioned before, another key breakthrough of Shen Nong's reign was therapeutic pharmaceuticals, and by that I do not mean a water pipe shop, but instead everything ranging from taking a pulse, to acupuncture, to the use of medicinal plants. Shen Nong derived this knowledge of plant properties through, well, trial and error, and by using himself as a guinea pig. Interestingly, his body was supposedly transparent so that he could see the various effects of plants on himself as he administered them. Fortunately, one of his earlier discoveries was tea, which proved to be quite a useful antidote to the 70-odd poisonous herbs he would subsequently test. Given his propensity to pretty much pick up any plant he found off the ground and eat it, it should hardly come as a surprise, then, that Shenong would finally meet his end through his endless self-experimentation with wild, often toxic plants on his own body. Having tested, he would come to find a highly toxic variety of yellow reed. He was unable to reach his tea antidote in time, and his intestines putrefied into liquid. Which does not sound like a fun way to go. Though it's not terribly clear when or where he was supposedly born, or to whom for that matter, Given the divinity of Shenong, a good guess is the Jade Emperor again. Most sources place the length of his reign at a mere 40 years. Now, this does sound short when compared to the century-plus standard set by his predecessor, Fu Shi, but it's still nothing to snivel at, especially when you're chiefly remembered for poisoning yourself routinely for science. Before moving on to our next sovereign, I'd like to take a moment to bring up once more the title of Yan Di, the Flame Emperor. While it is often used interchangeably with the man Shenlong, there is also the countervailing theory that it may not in fact refer to a single emperor, but perhaps an entire line of flame emperors spanning a period of as much as 500 years. Nevertheless, given the absolute lack of historical information on the period, and the fact that all of these sovereigns are mythical, divine, storybook characters, it's pretty safe to say that it doesn't really matter for the purposes of this podcast whether we think of them as a single figure or a dynastic succession of demigods. Our final entry into the triad of sovereigns is Huangdi, or the Yellow Emperor. There is significantly more information and quasi-documentation regarding this man 
including given and ancestral names, Xuanyuan and Gongsun, respectively. This has led many historians to conclude that Huangdi was, though still deeply steeped in mythological elements, at least significantly more historically rooted than his predecessors. I mean, hey, at least the Yellow Emperor didn't sport horns atop his head or have translucent skin. As such, he, rather than Fu Shi or Shen Nong, again, sorry, Nuwa, is often considered the first true monarch of China. Nevertheless, I must re-emphasize that it's important to remember that all of these figures are to one extent or another simply metaphysical constructs to describe a period forever veiled by the mists of time. There may have been a man or a succession of men who led this small but settled tribe and was termed the Yellow Emperor, but that potentially real person has undoubtedly been infused throughout story and time with powers, attributes, accolades, and divinity of previously heavenly gods. After all, a recurring feature of the story of humanity is that we all want to come from the gods. Traditionally, the Yellow Emperor augustly reigned from 2697 to 2597 BCE. He was born in a place called Xiuqiu, or Longevity Hill, in what is now Shandong Province, in the northeast of the region bordering the Pacific Ocean. Xiuqiu clearly lived up to its name, as a century-long reign is quite the feat. Early in his life, young Xuanyuan moved from Shandong to Hebei, where he became a farmer and a local leader along the Yellow River, in a region adjacent to the area of the Jiang River, Shennong the Flame Emperor, still reigned. During this stint, he distinguished himself mightily by taming no less than six different wild animals. Specifically, a bear, a somewhat more specific brown bear, a tiger, as well as both a pea and a shou, and a ferocious chu. I'll understand if you don't know what those last three were, so let me explain. The character P means a fox, leopard, or panther, while the shou means courageousness or fierceness. This might, of course, suggest that Xuanyuan merely tamed a ferocious fox, cat, leopard thing. But when put together, Pi Xiu is actually a mythological chimera animal that looks nothing so much as a winged lion or possibly maybe a tiger. The magical beast is still thought to be a powerful omen of good luck and wealth accumulation today, as in response to some ancient transgression, the monarchs of heaven allowed the creature to eat only gold and silver while sealing up its anus so that it could never get rid of the wealth it ate. Call them what you will, but the Chinese gods of antiquity were definitely not without a vivid imagination for punishment. Meanwhile, the Chu is a still undefined tiger-like cat-ish creature, so maybe a snow leopard or something. Though the Flame Emperor was revered for his many great deeds, he had become increasingly unable to control the factions that had sprung up under his rule. Attribute that, possibly, to his putrefying intestines. Or if we take the view that the title of Yan Di was a line of emperors rather than an individual, it could have been a protracted period of mounting tensions coupled with ineffectual leadership. Such corruption and breakdown of imperial power over the course of a dynasty is not much of a stretch to suggest 
And if you continue listening to this podcast, you'll find it will quickly become the rule of Chinese empire rather than some strange exception. This factionalism, along with an ever-present tribalism, evolved ultimately into a period of civil war throughout the region. And the flame emperor turned to Xuanyuan's Youxiong tribe as a potential ally in quelling the unrest after suffering a major defeat. This defeat came at the hands of a figure known as Chiyou and his rebellious tribe, the Jiaoli, along with as many as 80 other tribes in alliance with him. Xuanyuan readily agreed to assist the routed flame emperor. After all, rebels in one's adjacent region is rarely ever going to end well for your own, especially on the heels of defeating the major power of the area. Thus taking up arms, the combined forces of Youxiong and Shennong, known collectively as the Huaxia, amassed and met the Jiaoli in battle at a place called Zhoulu. In the course of this days-long battle, Xiao revealed his nefarious mystical powers by breathing a thick fog to darken the sky and disorient the imperial forces. But thinking quickly, Xuanyuan developed the Southern Pointing Chariot. This functioned as a battlefield compass for the imperial armies, as the figurine affixed to the top of this chariot would unerringly point, as you might guess, south. While a fairly trivial invention in our own time, it should be pointed out that Xuanyuan's Southern Pointing Chariot came about roughly 2,500 years before the invention of the magnetic compass. This means that it must have been rotated manually as the chariot turned, utilizing a form of deductive reckoning. And error-prone as dead reckoning is, it apparently was still accurate enough to allow the combined imperial forces to regroup. This, combined with the timely arrival of the allied Shenyu tribe, spelled the downfall of Cheyo's forces. Routed and hotly pursued, the rebel leader was ultimately captured and executed shortly thereafter in Hebei. Victorious, the Shenlong and Yoshong tribes established a capital at their site of victory, Zhou Lu, under the joint rule of the flame and now yellow emperors. The remnants of the Jiaoli tribe were scattered and driven south out of central China, in the process splintering into two tribes that would come to be regarded as barbarians by the Huaxia the Miao, and the Li. It seemed, for a time, that life would return to peace, but that was not to be, at least not yet. Though the two rulers had been allies in battle, their newly minted co-rulership chafed at both of the emperor's senses of pride. Before long, the tense peace was broken and battle resumed, but this time between the Yoxiong and Shenong forces themselves. In a series of three clashes, known as the Battles of Banchuan, the Shenlong armies were defeated and surrendered to the supremacy of the Yellow Emperor's rule. The Flame Emperor was thus relegated to the sidelines, and of course, eventual death by poison reeds. United now in peace, the two tribes formalized their union under the Yellow Emperor and took the name of their alliance, the Huaxia, as their collective demonym. Huangdi proved the magnanimous nature of his rule through teaching his people to build shelters, tame wild animals, and grow what would become the five Chinese cereals, which were soybeans, wheat, broom corn, foxtail millet, and, no surprise, rice. Further innovations for his people would include the beginnings of astronomy, 
a revised calendar using lunar cycles that is largely still used today, mathematics, a legal code, and even an early version of soccer. Huangdi reigned over his land for a hundred years, taking four wives and fathering an impressive 25 sons. But as with all rulers, his time would eventually draw to an end. As he approached the end of his life, he was visited by two legendary creatures. The first was a horned lion, covered in flame called the Qilin. The Qilin is sometimes referred to as a Chinese unicorn, and it would only appear with the eminent arrival or passing of an august ruler or visionary. Though this might sound rather ominous, it was actually taken to be a sign of good fortune, prosperity, and serenity. The second animal Huangdi encountered was a phoenix. And though in the West we typically associate the phoenix as the fiery bird of death and rebirth, the Chinese ideation of the bird is a symbol of the cosmos itself, especially when it's in balance. It would appear only to people or places that held the utmost peace and prosperity. The message was clear. The Yellow Emperor had brought tranquility, prosperity, and august leadership to the Huasha people. And now his time on Earth was at an end. Next time, we'll delve into the second phase of China's prehistoric origins mythos, the period of the Five Emperors. And like the muddled definition of the three sovereigns we just had to contend with this time, sources detailing the Five Emperors period tend to disagree with one another over just who these five emperors actually were. And while some sources confusingly include several of the sovereigns as a part of the supposedly succeeding Five Emperors, we'll do what we can and minimize repetition in favor of a more productive telling. Thank you for listening.